Welcome to Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and industry experts about everything from emerging trends to marketing strategies to regulatory pressures. The consumer packaged goods industry is undergoing a cataclysmic transformation, according to one branding expert who explained that the new crop of entrepreneurs who are unfettered by outdated taboos and unintimidated by industry giants, are challenging iconic brands that once were considered untouchable and winning. According to Paul Earl Jr., the principal of the innovation firm Earl & Company and author of the book, A Front Row Seat at the Revolution, there's a full-on revolution unfolding in the consumer products world, with consumer preferences changing and other conditions emerging making it easier than ever for entrepreneurs to enter once forbidden territory and to steal market share, consumer loyalty, and media attention from longtime category leaders. Like many in the food and beverage industry, Paul said that he was flummoxed by the companies like RX Bar, Beyond Meat, Halo Top, and others that quickly captivated consumers, secured massive distribution and sales, and utterly disrupted categories led by companies that had reigned at the top for decades unrivaled. Pushed to find out what these new brand rocket ships have in common, Paul spent a year traveling the U.S., interviewing and profiling 12 breakout brands for Forbes and his book to discover their secrets to success. In this episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast, Paul shares three markers for disruption that each brand has in common and which can serve as a guidepost for other entrepreneurs hoping to follow their lead. Sean Baez-Gilia of the Chicago-based consumer insights and product testing firm Curion also weighs in on how changing consumer preference factors into these macro shifts and shares a couple of hot categories to watch for ongoing innovation in the near future. As recently as 10 years ago, Paul says that there were some food and beverage products and even entire categories that were considered off-limits for new companies to go up against because the leading legacy brand so firmly dominated. But he adds, that's all changing now. In the world of consumer brands, all bets are off. There There are categories that were considered off limits not that long ago um, that are now in play. I mean, if I had walked into a conference room 10 years ago and announced to prospective investors that I'm going to enter the catch-up business and compete with Heinz, they would have uh, called the police or something. <laughs> you know, you've got, we have a crazy person here. You know, but now, you know, look what Sir Kensington is doing. They're doing exactly exactly that. So, so there, you know, there are. Um, it's it's it really is a a um, a new world order that's emerging where where previously, um, um, you know, again, off limits categories are are in play, and it's really really exciting to see. Um, it's exciting if you're a newcomer because it's possible today to build uh, brand awareness and consumer following um, really, really quickly, whereas that was hard, harder to do um, in earlier days. It's also, frankly, exciting if you're one of the incumbent companies because 
you better be on your game or you're going to get your clock cleaned. And so, you know, the onslaught of all of these great new innovative companies is also raising the bar for how cor- corporations innovate. So it's, it's really uh, an exciting time. Paul attributes this shift in part to consumers wanting to buy not just a product that they like, but from a brand or company they like. E-commerce and social media also are opening the door for newcomers to challenge legacy brands more effectively. I think younger consumers, so by that I mean millennials and the older end of the Generation Z spectrum, really want brands that they can join, not just buy. They want movements that they can be part of. Um, They're very interested in founder stories, origin stories, where where did this brand come from and what is its purpose? Why was it created? The why is more important than the what in many in many cases. Um, you know, if you look at a brand like Ollie, uh, um, you know, the reason why that is so successful is not because of the chemical compound of the actual vitamin you take. It's, it's a lot of other things. You know, it's purpose, it's design, it's ease of use. Um, all of those things are really important to this new um, up-and-coming um, age of consumers. And so, um, um, again, people are becoming accustomed to seeking out new brands, and they're becoming less and less brand loyal. Um, and so, so it, it, we really are seeing a perfect storm of events take place, making it better than ever for the creation of new brands. Not only do you have changing consumer preferences, like I just discussed, you also have the rise of e-commerce, making it possible to establish commercial presence of a new brand in consumer without having to, you know, go through the, you know, 18-month planning cycle of a retailer you know, where you've got prohibitive slotting fees and, and um, you know, you're begging and pleading for every last inch of shelf space, Where whereas now you throw it online off of your own website or off of Amazon or both, and you're able to commercialize products. And then social media is making it um, easier than ever to build a real following around a new brand. Before, you know, you'd have to, um, you know, spend millions, tens of millions, hundred million of dollars to build awareness. Now you can do it in a much more um, viral way online. And so, um, again, all of these factors combining, you know, create the conditions where we're seeing new ideas get to the market and stay there in mass. While these factors may help new companies attract consumers, Sean adds that to keep people coming back to the products, they need to taste good, and they need to meet consumers' higher nutritional and dietary standards of today. You can only sell something once. Um, So we're also seeing the large brands uh, react not only with what Paul's talking about, like the the purpose and and the – the ability through e-commerce to have access to new brands, but also um, around just, you know, healthy, um, plant-based, uh, you know, low sugar, different types of sugar, um, uh, ingredient-based uh, products. 
Beyond the changing landscape, Paul says startups that are successfully disrupting the status quo and stealing market share from long-standing food and beverage leaders have three markers in common. The first is that they're radically different from their competition. Second, they're dedicated to design. And third, they're a little weird. Amongst the markers are the following. Number one is um, all of these huge new companies um, are radically different. And so they're not just marginally different from the incumbents. They're, they're wildly different. And so um, and the uh, frame of reference is really important. So if you look at a, a brand um, like Peloton, which is not a food brand, uh, of course, but it, it's featured in the work, um, Peloton is not competing with Soul Cycle or Flywheel. They're competing with the old um, rusty, uh, dusty exercise machine in the basement with cobwebs on it. So it's the, the the Peloton experience is radically, materially better than than it's than the incumbent, and that happens in it's, hap, it's happening in food too. You mentioned Halo Top ice cream. For for someone who loves ice cream and flavor but is watching calories, Halo Top was spectacularly better than any other option out there. So, um, you know, one of the great quotes from this journey and experience was from Seth Goldman, who's the chairman of Beyond Meat, who said, you know, new new products can't just be better, they have to be radically better. And so what what big companies have been the trap they've been falling into for years, decades, is incrementalism, where they they think that they're coming out with something that's going to change the world when actually it's barely noticeable and it's only marginally improved versus the the um, original version. So um, new newcomers don't think that way. So another marker or disruption that these companies all have um, is a really strong commitment to design. And they it's rule-breaking design. They, don't, they do not play by the rules or orthodoxies of a category. Um, in some cases, because um, they have no regard for rules, and in other cases, they don't even know what they are. <laughs> so, you know, they're... They're bucking convention without even knowing that that's their bucking convention. They're just designing stuff that seems right and looks beautiful and inspired. So they're all design-driven. Um, and another one that is really, really important is that all of these new entrants, quite frankly, are a little weird. They're all a little bit quirky. They're anomalous. There's something curiously strong about all of them something that is oddly different and um and weird is good um it's it, it's engaging it makes things human it makes things personal and what big companies tend to do with their antiquated research is kind of strip out all of the um all of the elements on the extreme ends of the bell curve they kind of Stand down all the rough ed- edges of an idea and regress to the middle, um, which is just death for innovation because that's not where big ideas come from. And actually, Curion does a wonderful job of 
um, figuring out how to identify the really wonderful, magical, unusual um, elements of flavor and sensory experience and celebrate it and lean into it. Don't strip it out. You know, big companies too long have have eliminated all of the things that make a new a new offering in, interesting. So those are the, some of the um, markers of new ideas that are big winners, and you can see how they contrast with uh, with um, kind of old line thinking um, with the in- incumbents. Capturing the wonderful, magical, unusual elements of flavor and sensory experience, as Paul puts it, is exactly what Curion helps companies do. Sean explains Curion's secret for finding these elements rests in uncovering the why behind consumers' taste preferences. It's not just that it's more salty or it's bitter or it, or it's, you know, it's not smooth going down my throat. It's more about why. Um, you know, why do they want something, you know, uh, you know, quirky or they want something that was unexpected. And then when we see, um, you know, an intent to purchase of an unexpected flavor or ingredient and it, you know, it scales highly, we do then dig into it about the why. Um, and often, um, you know, what we're finding about the why is just that it, 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 as basic it is, is that it was an unexpected was an unexpected enjoyment or pleasure, um, or they had a response to a flavor that they didn't think, you know, black licorice would taste great in a soda, for instance. And um, um, and then when we see those, you know, we try to uncover those. And then, of course, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, our at, at sometimes, you know, we have to kind of push that up through the, you know, um, I guess channels you know, when these large organizations to taste to take the risk. In addition to hitting these markers, Paul says brands need to develop a fanatical following in order to disrupt the status quo. All big brands start as small brands with a fanatical following. And whether you're running a corporate R&D innovation center and working with Curion or whether you're an independent startup, but whoever you are, um, you have to figure out how you can develop a product that has a fanatical following. And it doesn't matter if it's 100 people or 1,000 people. It's never 100 million people at first. You have to allow these things to grow and, and build over time. That's the key. How do you build um, a fanatical following? You have to have a product that's really, really robust, um, your brand and company have to be born of purpose. Um, again, it's it's not the what as much as the why um, when it comes to purpose. What do you stand for? Where do you come from? What's your story? Um, you have to be able to build community. You know, ideally, um, being a consumer of a brand makes you almost part of a club, and brand fans can connect with each other. I mean, what an incredible end state that is where you have um, we have people engaging in dialogue around your brand and you as brand owner aren't even involved in it. Um, I think you have to be transparent and you have to be honest. Um, no hidden agendas, no secrets, 
So people want to know where the product comes from. Um, is it sustainable? Is it ethical? Is this food good? You know, it tastes good, but is it good? You know, those are oftentimes two different things. <laughs> you know, um, there are lot, lots of lots of food products out there that taste incredible that have lots of um, things in there that aren't very good for you. So, um, you know, it's it's really I think uh, I like to think of a brand as a bird's nest. Um, it's it's a composite of lots of different things that comprise housing for something. And all of these great brands are very elaborate bird's nests with many, many different attractive elements and and reasons to bring people into them. Even with all of these markers and a fanatical following, some areas are more primed for disruption than others. Reflecting on Curion's work, Sean says that he sees two very different categories that are ripe for innovation. Uh, when we work with innovation, um, that's when we start getting a little bit of a peak in the future. Um, and, and I would say, um, you know, there's a couple hot categories, the uh, al- alcohol, beer, wine uh, category is very hot, trying a lot of new, um, and, and this is beyond craft beers and, and so forth, but, you know, trying uh, new ingredients um, that would be super surprising, um, both in carbonated and non-carbonated beverages, uh, really unusual, uh, you know, ingredients that they seem to be getting and looking at emerging brands to, um, you know, uh, follow. So we're seeing a lot of that with, you know, major number one or two um, alcohol players. But the other area actually is interesting that that we're, we're starting to see is a lot around um, kids' uh, eating habits, right? So, so the ones that can – figure out a healthier, um, approachable um, uh, ingredients uh, to go after the kids. Um, and, you know, they're, they're not diet. They have no dietary, you know, you know biases because they, they want everything that's not good for them. But at the same time, um, you know, the parents are really struggling because they're of the generation on the tail end of these emerging brands and also consumers of these emerging brands where they, they want uh, some of those natural beyond meat, uh, plant-based uh, stuff that's not great tasting, right? So um, I, we're seeing a lot of work and a lot of effort um, around manufacturers that have brands that uh, traditionally have probably not been so good for kids uh, to make them better. And, uh, you know, they're, they're following the lead of some of the emerging brands that are out there. But, you know, those brands don't necessarily have the scale or the shelf space or the distribution to kind of, you know, to reach, to reach the, um, you know, general population uh, that have children. Building on Sean's last point about rapid innovation in children's food, I'd like to point out quickly that earlier this month, Food Navigator USA announced the date for its third Food for Kids Summit, which examines all aspects of the children's food market. That'll be in Chicago next November 11th through 13th. And if you're interested in learning more about it, check out www.foodnavigatorusasummit.com. Going back to the point at hand, 
Paul also sees significant potential for innovation and disruption in categories currently struggling with sustainability, in need of a high-end luxury option or inexpensive value item, or that currently have an underdeveloped presence online. You know, as we look to the future, one of the maxims I often share with my clients and partners is that there are no sure things in business, but the closest you can get to a sure thing is to enter an ugly category with beautiful product. So, so um, you know, there's still some low-hanging fruit out there where a really modern, um, stunning, human-centered design um, aesthetic has not yet taken hold. So that's one area of opportunity. Um, I also think, of course, um, any category where there is wildly irresponsible um, environmental behavior going on, there's an opportunity to, 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 to deliver product in a more sustainable way. That's a, a trend that is gathering steam quickly and it's just starting, not, not ending. And, you know, I'm also very interested in opportunities to come in either on top of a category with a, with a spectacular luxury um, alternative to the commonplace experience um, or come in underneath with a, with a substantial value story um, compared to the incumbent space. And then, you know, another dimension that's worth looking at is, um, is e-commerce. You know, what are, what are some spaces that are underdeveloped from the perspective of direct-to-consumer, and those might be opportunities. So I think opportunity abounds. Um, it's an incredibly exciting time to be in this business, um, and I, I truly believe that as far as the, the revolution is concerned, we are literally just Starting. This is this is the beginning, not the end. We're in about the the first or second inning, to use a baseball metaphor. And um, I think the consumer world is going to look completely different um, in ten years or maybe in five years than it does today. And with that, we've reached the end of another episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast. I hope you'll join me again next week for another installment. And to ensure that you remember, I recommend you subscribe to us on iTunes. Until next time, this is Elizabeth Crawford wishing you a productive and profitable week.